0: BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back.
1: Hello, welcome to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio Show, ten till one. Now, last week, uh, my producer Emma brought in some political top trumps from 2007. Uh, which we played on air, pitching Hazel beers against Lembit Oakwick. It was very 2007. And I asked people on the show uh, and listeners uh, what other political things they'd found in charity shops. Now, one listener, Liam, got in touch to say that he'd found a House of Commons cookbook from 1987 with recipes from Norman Tebbit and Margaret Thatcher and so on. So over the weekend, I had a go at Neil Koenig's Welsh Cakes, uh, which Tony Turnbull, The Times, uh, Food editor came in and gave 7 out of 10. I think he was being polite. But anyway, I thought they were absolutely delicious and they kept, they kept me fueled to the entire show. But I was also asking people uh, what, uh, for political recipes, if we are going to do our own updated version of political uh, recipes uh, for a political cookbook. And on today's show, we had absolutely loads uh, sent in. Uh, Sturgeon and chips at Callum McDonald who does early breakfast on, on uh, Times Radio. Uh, Lisa Markwell. Uh, who's the time? Sunday Times food editor, uh, suggested uh, Pound Cake, Lancashire Hot Spot, Lesser Spotted Dick, loads and loads of those. Peter Swan said John Selwyn, Gummer's Ultimate Quarter Pounder. Uh, loads and loads of them uh, came in. Uh, Sir Keir Starmer's Bland Pudding said someone else. Um, I think... Uh, Cock-up-a-leaky soup was probably my favourite. Uh, anyway, uh, so that's what we were talking about or on the show today, so it will crop up during the podcast. On today's podcast, I spoke to Andy Hamilton, comedy writer extraordinaire, who's got a new book out, which he's handwritten. Not just the draft, but the actual book itself is in his own handwriting. Uh, but we asked him what he would do if he ruled the world when we put politicians in charge of the world. But first, I spoke to two of our best columnists, Times economists Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. And we talked a lot about uh, Extinction Rebellion and about the theatre and the arts, but we also talked about food as well. Uh, Matt Chorley on Times Radio. Um, <laughs> I think I'm going to spend all morning eating a, uh, eating a Welsh cake, enjoying every news bulletin. Um, I've been asked of your political um, uh, recipe suggestions. I did say at the top of the show, if you text in and Mess, you will be banned from listening to the show. So, Greg in Eltham, I'm sorry, but you've fallen foul of that. You're not allowed to listen to the show anymore for sending in um, uh, such a, a tediously obvious uh, suggestion. Anyone else caught sending in and Mess will be equally banned. So I'm afraid, Greg, you can't listen to uh, our next two guests. It's just gone 10.30, so when we speak to uh, two of our favourite columnists every day uh, on the show. And today, as ever, because it's Monday, it's Libby Purvis. Morning, Libby. Good morning. And Rachel Sylvester. Morning, Rachel. Morning. Um, Now then, uh, let's start with uh, one of the big stories over the weekend. And and there's nothing, let's be honest, there's nothing the media likes doing more than talking about itself. So um, uh, Extinction Rebellion protesters stopping newspapers from leaving the presses over the weekend. Uh, And it's all inevitably got very political, uh, Tory MPs and ministers uh, coming out and and condemning the action. But Keir Starmer now under pressure to distance himself uh, from some Labour MPs, Mm. including Diane Mm. Abbott, who backed the protests where where does this what would you first of all make of the protests uh libby and 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 the speed with which this suddenly became a sort of tory labour thing
2: it was was well, the, the protests i think were awful they were misdirected as extinction rebellion very often is i mean it is it is now it, it's a political a uh, political subversive movement far more than an environmental movement frankly and i mean given that most of the people on it would really have only known through the mainstream press the extent of uh, the, the situation with, with global warming and, and uh, environmental degradation and so on. Uh, it, I thought it was a ridiculous protest, but actually, almost more ridiculous is people ru- suddenly rounding on Keir Starmer as if it was somehow his fault because it took him 36 hours to condemn it personally, even though other Labour frontbenchers had condemned it and he'd simply been away doing something else. Um, it, it's been condemned. I think he should distance himself from Diana, but I think almost everybody should should, really. Well, on all matters. It's the way to go. Yeah, um, uh, and I think, I think that the two MPs, you know, who stupidly tweeted, "Oh, well done, jolly good, you know, it's just like the suffragettes. It's not just like the suffragettes. You know, it, it's, it's something quite different and quite dangerous and, in this case, really insulting to all the very thorough and honest reporting, which actually is done in even the most right-wing papers uh, and certainly in sort of Middling papers like the Times. I think uh, <laughs> I, I, it's, it's I, I'm sorry to describe you as middling, but frankly you are. And the, the day the Times stops being middling is the time I go sadly off into the sunset. I think you have to be able to look at both sides of all sorts of questions. And I mean, Extinction Rebellion has to admit also that its demands would mean a major economic disaster and a lot more. Miserable deaths and a lot more poverty, both here and across the world. You know, if you were to literally take everything they demand seriously, I, I think they're—I think they're a disaster.
1: Uh, Rachel Sylvester, what did you make of this, Of the way the Tories try to turn that? You know, they, they clearly want. The Tories seem quite annoyed that it's not still Jeremy Corbyn who's the leader of the Labour Party. <laughs> in, the, in an <laughs> well, ideal exactly- scenario, he'd be down there, you know, tying himself to some bamboo canes as well. Uh, And they could turn this into a, you know, look whose side he's on. But but Keir Starber's just refusing to play that game.
3: No, and it's quite clever of him, I think. And I totally agree with... Libby that really this isn't about the Labour Party or only in the sense that the Labour Party has moved on from the Jeremy Corbyn days. It's about what does Extinction Rebellion stand for? And I thought there was one of the banners at the protest over the weekend said socialism not extinction. And and this has been wrapped up, the environmentalism has been wrapped up in this anti-capitalist movement. So it's now become about much, much more, which of course Jeremy Corbyn was much more comfortable with. And the Left-wing MPs who are in his wing of the party are absolutely happy with that, but Keir Starmer isn't. Uh, And Emily Thornberry came out very quickly and made clear that she didn't agree with it. Um, So there's a, in a way, they're fighting. The Tories who are trying to make this about the Labour Party are fighting an old battle. Uh, And I don't think Keir Starmer is on that side of the argument. Um, I think he should distance himself from it, but he has. Uh, And. The, the issue really is whether the Extinction Rebellion people themselves want to stay as a. To begin with, I think there was quite a lot of public support for the aims and certainly for the idea of tackling climate change, and Greta Thunberg and and the sort of broad principles behind Extinction Rebellion. But it it feels like it's been hijacked by a hard left um group a bit like the labor party was under jeremy corbyn uh, and they've got to decide whether they're going to be stay a sort of mainstream movement that is going to actually bring about change that can save the planet or whether they're going to go down a blind alley of anti-capitalist protest movement
1: yeah, it was interesting. It was sort of um, at the beginning of this year, the concern the percentage of people who said that the environment was one of the most important issues facing the country got up to something like 30%. It was only behind, uh, I think, uh, was it Brexit maybe, and uh, the NHS uh, and health, which is always a sort of uh, a concern. And so it, it was sort of working in that sense that people were becoming more concerned about it. It was getting on the front pages mm. and people were discussing it, but then it sort of... Yeah, they risk um, sort of alienating people. Do you think it's a reasonable criticism that uh, the concern about climate change and the climate emergency, as they call it, doesn't get the sort of coverage that it should? Or is it just like the nature of something that's sort of happening all the time in the background? In, it, actually, in the way that, you know, coronavirus isn't on the front pages every day now because it's just sort of something we live with, Libby. <laughs>
2: Well, I think yes, that that does happen. Of course, the the news the news focus changes, but I I have been noticing quite a lot of worried reporting about, for instance, the chucking away of a lot of um PPE and masks. You know, the the, the plastic explosion which has been caused by the coronavirus the coronavirus problem. Uh, I I think that of course the focus changes, but it's always there. It's it's I think people are aware of it. I think people do care about it. You see it in in even people's uh, recycling behaviour. You know, you you don't see it in a lot of the people who sort of fly tip all over the countryside, but you see it in, in ordinary lives. I think people are aware of it, people worry about it, people talk about it, but you cannot expect the papers to talk about nothing else the whole time, which is what Extinction Rebellion presumably uh, presumably wants. But it's not it's not a sensible movement, it's not a helpful movement, it's a movement which alienates, I think, far more people from their cause than it ever brings into it. I think it's a disaster. And, you know, uh, all politicians can condemn it all they like.
1: Uh, Just finally, before we move on, uh, Rachel, there are some parallels here, aren't there, with the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. There were... Look, you know, most people, I mean, apart from very strange people, but most people uh, believe that more should be done to achieve uh, racial equality in society. Uh, but they, you know, and so, you know, would broadly think that they supported the idea of Black Lives Matter. But then you get into, you know, defund the police and all that sort of stuff, and it becomes a sort of extremist thing. And then people get very nervous then about, what well, do I support, you know, how, could I, how vocal should I be about these things? So people who are concerned about uh, the environment may well have sort of uh, supported the... The, the initial apparent principles of Extinction Rebellion, but then it just it begins, it begins to be sort of hijacked by the hard left.
3: I think that's a really good point. Yes, and I, I don't know if you saw that the footage of those people—they were having dinner at a restaurant in Washington—and some of the Black Lives Matter protesters came up and started haranguing them because they weren't raising a fist in solidarity. And this woman was really intimidated, and it was really shocking, actually, that um, the idea that they—they they were looming over her, really terrifying her. Uh, and I think there is a danger where the broad aims of that, you know, the idea of racial equality and the idea of saving the environment are both really important mainstream aims that most people would agree with. But if the movements that represent those aims are hijacked by a sort of hard left hard left cabal, you're going to put more and more people off. And I think if people want to achieve change, which is necessary in both those areas, you have to have as m- wide support as possible uh, and harness all the, you know, m- what things you can d- um, do yeah. to your goals. So, for example, instead of being anti-capitalist, how can capitalism help by creating better electric vehicles or, you know, um, mm. uh, more efficient aeroplanes? And y- you need to use the tools at your disposal rather than narrowing the uh, campaign
1: yeah, it's interesting. But it's
2: a, it's, a shocking, it, it's a shocking phenomenon, actually, that you have to remember that the hard right hijack things too. I mean, you just have to look at the Rural Britannia thing, you know, Farage singing yeah. it. Um, you've got yes. to look at the Brexit mm. thing. A lot of people... I mean, uh, both sides do tend to get hijacked. All causes get hijacked by lunatics on the edge. It is a great shame that the environmental movement, has been so violently hijacked in that direction.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, it's, um, it's, yeah, basically we're lun- everyone with equal opportunity in calling everyone lunatics on all sides. Um, let's move on and talk about this new campaign group that's um, uh, been launched today. Tory MPs and former uh, Labour red wall seats are demanding that Boris Johnson make levelling up more than a slogan. Who'd have thought that, that it might have just been a slogan? Uh, they want targets set at the budget for raising wages in the poorest areas. Um, there's about forty odd uh, backbenchers launching this group to press for economic progress in those uh, those seats the Tories won. Uh, Rachel, this is sort of another sign of a, is it a sort of yet another sort of caucus of MPs on the on the Tory backbenches, you know, causing a headache for the prime minister. His, his majority of eighty. I mean, that's half of his majority. If all of those forty voted against the government, uh, they could win a vote on that, couldn't they? It's a sign yeah. that it's not quite as stable as it, you you might have thought.
3: And remember, these are the MPs who won seats, in most cases, MPs who won seats that had never been held by the Conservatives for decades. Um, These were the sort of Labour, Red Wall, Heartland seats um, that fell to the Tories at the last election because people wanted to change. And it was the Boris Johnson and his Get Brexit Done slogan that persuaded them that they wanted to vote Tory for the first time. But the Conservatives will never keep those votes if they don't give uh, those voters something in their sort of day-to-day lives. So, you know, whether that's wages, housing, employment rights, the things that actually make a difference in people's lives. Once Brexit's done and dusted one way or another um they they're going to have to win those those people over in other ways and i think it's really interesting that they they're becoming a very powerful group these um the sort of blue collar tories who won um won the won seats for the first time and they're going to be very influential over the next few months and years i think between now and the next election because they've got to they've got to try and keep those seats
1: it is, uh, it's Libby. It's part of the sort of competing forces, isn't it? That you've got on the one hand you've got uh, you know those those red wall Tory MPs who want spending, 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 and then you've got sort of old guard Tory MPs who want low taxes, and then you've you know are we going to be Singapore on sea after Brexit, or are we going to be you know is it all about state aid and the government propping up and backing various industries? There's a lot of sort of contradictions at the heart mm. of the government.
2: Oh, I think this is absolutely thrilling. I mean, I've been waiting ever since the election. Obviously, I mean, COVID, COVID obviously delayed everything, but I've been waiting for these Red Wall uh, Tories, the new Tories, to feel their oats a bit and start to kick out and say, look, the reason we voted for you was for the sake of our constituents. It was for the sake of our people. It was for the sake of levelling up. You know, if you're not going to do it, there is going to be trouble. And I've been waiting for this, this moment of feeling their oats. Um, and, and now it's happened. I'm, I'm turning cartwheels I'm, I'm looking in the times at the moment at a wonderful picture of dehenna Davison who won in Bishop Auckland and that's a resolute face that's a proper northern resolute face you know it's it's great it the Boris has got to have his feet held to the fire over this business of levelling up. It really, really has, and you know, all you know, all, all of them have simply got to understand that people, you know, the the the, the backbench red wall M- MPs are going to be a serious force to be reckoned with in the months to come. I am excited by it.
1: But well, if you're doing cartwheels, you could uh, you could do that in front of a socially distanced audience and charge good money for that. I'd have thought, Libby. Um, you've been you've written in the Times <laughs> today about um uh, uh, about how you you've, you have been back and you've been enjoying some theatre of sorts.
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the, I wanted to sample as, as fast as possible how it can be in under social distancing and masks on and so on. And, you know, there, there are upsides and downsides. I mean, the main downside is, frankly, that unless the social distancing is dropped and people are allowed to take their own risks and, you know, make, make their own decisions, uh, the, the sector, the arts sector, and I mean all the way from rock gigs, you know, and, and comedy clubs, you know, from, and from Chekhov to Charlie's Aunt, it's all just going to collapse, and it will be a disaster. And I think, uh, you know, I mean, it's not really safe to start me off on this, Matt, as you <laughs> well know. But come on, then, tell
1: uh, us tell us then what
2: you've <laughs> but been I to do see. Think it's, I have been, I have been to, um, uh, the music, you see, came Snake Maltings is, is close to me, and so I've managed to get to five concerts, uh, which are incredibly competitive. You have to sort of hunch over that. you know, at ten o'clock on a Saturday morning, up comes the opportunity to book, and you have to be sitting there with your finger on the button going, bang, got it, Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment, you know. You are 75th in the queue, even though it is sort of a few seconds after 10. Um, so I've been to them and it was very, very moving. I mean, your mask goes soggy with the tears. And I've been to see uh, Rafe Fines in London at the bridge doing that David Hare monologue about how he got COVID and it's all the government's fault. Um, and <laughs> I have been to a, a local thing, a rather brilliant thing about, um, about the great Peg Lynch, the, the American woman who invented sitcom on radio and television. And uh, that was brilliantly done locally. And they'd done that in a sort of tiny distanced audience allowed, you know, really about 20 of us. Uh, but it was filmed very effic- efficiently and streamed to people who then subscribe to it and they pay. I mean, one of the big problems is it's very hard to get money out of streaming. And this is why all these arts organisations are kind of fading. People need to go. People need to assemble. We need to do it. Uh And I I just think it should be higher up. I'm not saying change everything now instantly. I'm just saying debate it properly, consider it properly, consider it as seriously as you do aviation and offices and all these other things the government worries about. Think about it seriously. Discuss it. Work out how to get people back. Uh, and that, I mean, the Sunday Times flew a kite about how, yeah, ooh, yeah, this is happening. You know, I have seen no actual evidence of this yet, but it, it has to happen. It, it really matters to a great many people.
1: You know, I, jobs. I was very lucky that when we were on holiday in Cornwall uh week before last, we went actually to go to the Minack Theatre Ooh, and yeah. saw Educating Rita. And it was so good. I mean, partly because, you know, having not been able to watch any uh, theatre for such a long time, the play was brilliant. Uh, um, and obviously it helped. There's only sort of two people in it. And then I was something gross in the play. Every so often I'd forget and I'd sort of look mm-hmm. at and realise we were sitting right by the sea. And, you know, the sun went down <laughs> behind us and it was it was just spectacular. And, yeah, and obviously it being open air um, massively helps in terms of, you know, circulating of air. There was social distancing as well. Um, but, obviously, as we head into uh, winter, every production's going to end up being a bit like the Tempest if they're not careful. So, um, yeah, there needs to be it's a better got, solution. I mean, it's,
2: it's, it's going to get cold. I mean, indoor entertainment really has to be thought about very, very soon,
3: very fast, very urgently.
1: Uh, Just finally, before I let you go, we've been talking about um, political uh, recipes. Rachel, have you got any suggestions for political recipes? Um,
3: Has anyone suggested fool? I'd have a gooseberry fool or (laughs) rhubarb fool. Fool is good. We've banned
1: eating mess, but fools (laughs) are fine. (laughs) Fools are all right. Um, (laughs) What about you, Libby?
3: Oh,
2: as a middling centrist, I suppose fudge is the only answer, is really, There's isn't lots it? of fudge,
1: yeah. Um, uh, who's that? Med G- Good on uh, Twitter says, he's uh, pretty sure Theresa May is a good fudge recipe. And Boris Johnson has an excellent cake recipe, which you can have and eat, um, which, is, <laughs> which is excellent. As ever, lovely to speak to you on a Monday. Uh, Libby Purvis and uh, Rachel Sylvester. If you like what you're hearing, you can listen to the whole of my Times radio show. Either listen back on the times radio app or you can listen live monday to thursday 10 till one we'll have more on the episode after this
0: it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: Matt Julian on Times Radio with a mouthful of Welsh cake, if I'm absolutely honest. Um, I'm going to put the lid on those to stop me... Uh, there we are, that's the top of our lid on those, that'll stop me eating them. They're all right, actually. Neil Neil Koenig's recipe's fine. Uh, And uh, you can find that on Twitter if you're particularly interested in uh, cooking like former Labour leaders. Uh, Tomorrow, a recipe for Ed Miliband's bacon sandwich. Uh, Now then, here on Times Radio, we know that some of the best ideas in politics don't come from politicians. So sometimes we like to ask people who aren't political what they would do if they were in charge. And I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by a sort of comedy writing uh, legend and hero, Andy Hamilton. Afternoon, Andy. Afternoon. How are you doing?
4: Uh, I'm very well. I can hear myself twice.
1: Oh, dear. Uh, Are you echoing back at yourself?
4: Yeah, I think coming out of your studio, mate.
1: I'll tell you what, should we try and get you back on the on a, on a landline or, or a mobile phone? Let's try and do that in a sec. We'll have Andy Hamilton uh, in a sec. Um, uh, and then we'll be doing the quiz. Uh, the Can You Get to Number 10 uh, quiz that we do every day just before uh, one o'clock. Uh, we are actually a bit low on contestants, actually. So if you wanted to do the quiz, you can get in touch with us. Email studio at times.radio. If you think you can answer ten general knowledge quizzes and go all the way to becoming the uh, the Prime Minister of our show and uh, yes, we'll give that a go uh, later on. I think we've got Andy back now. Andy Hamilton, are you there?
4: Yes, I am here.
1: Is that better? You're not echoing in your own head.
4: No, I'm I'm fine. I, I, I'm always <laughs> echoing.
1: Okay. So uh, in a sec, we we'll talk about your book, but first of all, we're going to put you in charge. You're going to say that you rule the world. So if you, if you were in charge, uh, what would you do? What law would you pass?
4: Um, I would pass uh, a law to uh, try and quell public anger you know there's a lot of anger in public discourse everyone's getting very angry all the time and i and, I, and personally i'm getting quite angry about all the anger so i would do my best <laughs> to uh, quell the pub that would be my 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 election ticket i would have slogans like um uh kill the anger uh, <laughs> and uh rip down all hate and, and and just calm down and stuff like that and just like, calm down it's so- a great
1: election in the slogan i have to say
4: yeah, it would be good. Uh, uh,
1: what happens if some people don't like your policy and they get angry about it?
4: Well, I'm not going to tolerate that. <laughs> but, I mean, I think should use concrete measures. You know, like, I think the first one would be the Twitter Control Act, which would be... I wouldn't ban Twitter because that would be authoritarian. But I would make the rule that if you want to send a tweet, that's fine. But you have to write the tweet out in your handwriting, uh, on paper, and put it in an envelope and put a stamp on it and send it to every, you know, and you have to do that for every <laughs> single follower that you've got. And I, th- I think that would greatly reduce the sort of uh, frenzy <laughs> toxicity it of would public cer- It would
1: certainly make you think twice. I mean, sometimes, you know, I could do with thinking twice before pressing send on a tweet. So if you had to go through all that trouble, you really would... Um... Uh, yeah. you really would think twice in terms yeah. of in terms of anger and the way that people get sort of amazingly cross about everything I, in the introduction i'll say that you've I mean you've written for just about every tv and radio comedy uh, show uh going if, what what is fueling do you think people getting so angry about everything instead of maybe having a laugh or seeing the funny side um why do you think people get so cross about everything these days
4: i don't know i think it's maybe but bec- um maybe it is the byproduct of many many years of affluence is that it seems to be that the more affluent we get the greater the tendency we have to feel short-changed about things you know because the truth is that we've lived you know my generation certainly has lived through a period of unparalleled stability and calm uh, and yet people still seem to be going out of their way to get really worked up about things.
1: Uh, and what sort of leader would you be, do you think, if you were if you were ruling the world?
4: Uh, I'd be firm but fair. Um, I think uh, you know that I'd I'd think I'd be the, a, a very the voice of sanity. I mean, I have to say that this is an item in your show. But if I ruled the world, or being world emperor, has been <laughs> a daily fantasy. <laughs> yeah and and i i must follow it up because the the united nations haven't replied to any of my letters for years now but um but i would probably be quite a dangerous person to give power to i think i'm probably the last person it should be have power bestowed on them
1: and and who would you have advising you obviously every every great leader has a has a comings to just just in the shadow yeah. who would you have advising you
4: well if if my objective is to quell uh, public anger I think I'd need someone who's really experienced in managing uh, outbursts of pointless rage so I think I would go for Mrs Gordon Ramsay <laughs> <laughs> so I'm presuming that on a daily basis she has to say oh calm down Gordon it's just a pudding you know I, I, I think she'd be so I, I would use someone like her someone who's experienced at calming people down I think.
1: That sounds very sensible. And just because all political careers um, end in failure, what's your vice that you think will end up uh, uh, forcing your inevitable resignation?
4: Uh, well, well, yeah, what weakness? Well, it wouldn't be complacency, obviously, because that's not, not going to happen to me. Um, <laughs> I think um, probably, thinking about it, I think probably what, what would bring me down in the end is my tendency to, when I'm in the middle of doing something, to break off and just have a bit of cheese, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that would be. I, I, I'm I'm imagining that at some crucial political moment, the distraction of the cheese in the fridge, I'd take my eye off the ball, you know, which politicians yeah, that can be lethal for any politician. I'd miss some important uh, political development because I was rummaging through the fridge. That uh, yeah, I mean Boris Johnson's faced criticism for me- missing.
1: Um... Uh, cobra meetings and that sort of thing. If it turned out he'd missed him because he popped off a bit of cheese, I
4: think the criticism yeah, would be even greater. I, yeah, I think it'd be. I think it'd be hard to. It'd be a long row back from that. I think once once the Telegraph had exposed that, you know, I'd be in trouble. I think. Uh,
1: so you're actually. I mean, I'm glad that you're ruling the world. But I think uh, less anger and more cheese seems like a good a good policy platform around. But we actually need to speak to you about your your book uh, Longhand, and uh, we we need to talk about. I mean, ob- well. Tell us, first of all, what the book is about, and then we'll talk about exactly how it's been written.
4: Yeah, well, the book is in the form of a letter being written by a man who has to abandon his partner in rather dramatic circumstances after 20 years. So he's leaving a a, a long letter explaining um, why he's leaving her and revealing his secret identity to her and telling her his life story, effectively. And he's had a long and spectacular life. So it's in the form of a letter, uh, but of course what's unique about it is that um, it's a handwritten letter and it's been published in handwriting.
1: And it's your handwriting, it's not some sort of fancy handwriting
4: font? No, it is not a fancy handwriting font, that is my handwriting. It is my Sunday best handwriting. You know, it's not what I would squiggle uh, on the bottom of a check or something, it is uh, it's my grown-up handwriting, but yeah, I did try, I did consider Developing some form of character handwriting, but I thought that, that to do that over three hundred pages, <laughs> a, bit, a bit of a strain. But it is clear and it is legible. So how do how do you go about doing this? Because obviously,
1: um, the, lots of authors uh, do their maybe their first draft or their planning in uh, longhand, but then yeah. at some point it becomes uh, typed up, and then the editing process is sort of easier to do and that sort of thing. How do you go about writing it and then crucially editing it? How many how many versions did you go through?
4: Um, well, I. I estimate that of the 340-odd pages, I think only like one page in 10 is the original as it started out. So I I redrafted and and wrote out again, you know, the other nine at least once. So that's about 3,000 pages in total, I suppose. So I was... um, uh, Obviously, one of the attractions is that... The opportunity for other people to edit it is slightly restricted. <laughs> <laughs> they can't just dip because in and make a change. A that, yeah. they're going to say, oh, I don't like that bit. of of I ask him to change it, he's got to write out you know twenty pages. Um, so uh, that's not why I did it, but it was a happy um, corollary of doing it. Yeah. And when you're when you're
1: um, writing, we talked about you being a comedy writer. How do, do you write all of your your gags longhand
4: as well? Everything I've ever written starts out in longhand. And um, so um, for me, it's not that exceptional a thing. I mean, um, you know, my my whole writing life has been in longhand. And as you say, it, it gets given to people to type up. And
1: it, it your career stretches back to write for Not The Nine O'Clock News, uh, uh, Alas, Smith & Jones, all the way through to... Um... Armstrong and Miller and Outnumbered. And, uh, the, according to your Wikipedia page anyway, you used to write for the Two Ronnies. I'm such a massive Two Ronnies fan. I've got to ask you, what, what was it like writing on the Two Ronnies?
4: Well, I have to be honest, I, I did get a sketch on the Two Ronnies, but I was not one of their, you know, I wasn't a regular writer. I wrote a sketch for them about Ronnie Corbett breaking down, his car breaking down in a South American country, and he could only communicate with the um with the mechanic in 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 uh words like Bobby Charlton and stuff like that so <laughs> So I didn't have an intimate knowledge of working the two with the two Ronnies.
1: I'm afraid. Oh, not not to, I'll, I'll let you off. I'll let you off. The very fact you've got writing for the two Ronnies on your Wikipedia page yeah. is. No, I did. I did get a
4: sketch. That's just,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Andy Hamilton, really good to speak to you. And the book just sounds. Oh, it sounds like a great story anyway. And this, um, the the novel, the fact that it's it's all written in your longhand makes it even more fascinating. So that's Andy Hamilton there uh, talking about his book uh, Longhand, uh, which is out uh, now. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Uh, you can now listen back to my whole show on the Times Radio app, where you can also now listen to all of the Times podcasts, including Red Box 2. Make sure you subscribe and review at the Red Box Podcast wherever you listen. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's
0: goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at LutonRising.org.uk. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary